Welcome to the Potion Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry, brought to you by SHC. What has happened, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Potion Podcast. Um, I know on Tuesday I said that I was going to do three parts of the Fick Food Guys interview over three weeks, but I thought, you know what, I'm still in the process of moving. I'm still in the process of setting up my office, getting internet, getting the bar set up, everything like that. So I decided just to do one, two, three. It'll be Tuesday this week, Friday today. I'm doing this a bit late, and then Tuesday next week. So I hope you're enjoying this episode, guys. This is part two of three of the Vic Food Guys. So I'll chat to you soon, guys. Thanks a lot. Have a good weekend. Bye. It really did stand out though when we went there because I'd been to Cafe Mexico before the fire and I was like, this is not the same restaurant. So it's interesting that you were saying that you wish that like it had been rebranded. Yeah, I just think it would have been easier because people weren't getting the like the taco burrito half and half plates and just the Tex-Mex rubbish. And again, that's expectations, right? Because people would come in with that name and they would have an expectation. Exactly. Like even when like so when Clyde's rebranded, Clyde's was Victoria Jane's for like 20 years. So Victoria James was a pub in this space. Mm. And so when they redid it all, like they gutted the room. Um, can I get a picture for you? Can I jump up and get you a picture? Because I've got a picture. Yeah, yeah, can, I've, got can, a, I've got a sure. picture of the original Victoria yeah, I can, James. I can cut this. Yeah, yeah. Let's see here. Let's get this in the, in, the, in the. If you're not watching the video, we're back now. I've got it up on the uh, the video right now. The picture he's talking about. So this is Victoria James before okay. renovations. Yeah. So this is all this back section here. Like it kind of, it kind of, I could have probably used that. Like it's a very hipster joint. I could have probably worked with that, but they did this big renovation. But then when they renovated, they wanted to get away from this British pub sort of feel, but invited every, all the old clientele back. And so they all wanted it. So I remember a funny story when I first took the position here. Um, I left Moxie's back on Vancouver and Yates. I was the assistant general manager there and I came over here. And the wife and I were out one night and I'm like, you know what? Let's go to, let's go to Clive's, check it out. Brought all my friends down, like six people right here. And let's check out where, where I'm going to take over. And we came down and uh, there was drag racing on the TV with sound. So sound was like right through here with the drag racing going on. And I'm sitting there and I ordered a cocktail and it took about 25 minutes to get to me. And I lent over to my wife and I had a good job at Moxie's. Like it was, it was, it was still Moxie's, but I, took, I had a good job there. And I lent over to my wife. I'm like, I've made a fucking horrible mistake. This is, this is not good. And so for the first six months, we still played hockey on the, on the TVs with sound. And it was just a very, a place where staff would come and hang out and have nachos and watch the the hockey game or the the tennis thing. So it was this massive change from Victoria Jane's, which was, as you can see the picture to the swanky sort of room where they spent a whole bunch of money. And so it was a long, a long and hard process to sort of build that. And Cafe Mexico was very similar too. It was like, okay, so every table on a Friday night, I know I'm going to have to go and explain to them what the menu's like, how it sort of rolls. This is what we do now. This is a, this is our margaritas. We don't do them in big witches brews where we just dump in a whole bunch of mixed dough and sweet and sour mix and just scoop it out on ice and just serve it. We do them real cocktails and stuff like that. And so I always try and, it's, it's a humbling moment when you think that, Everything you've done in your career would make it easier, and it never is. It's always still freaking hard. That's <laughs> always hard. And as far as Clive's here, do you have any things upcoming 
that you have planned that are going to be in the works or is this kind of an ever evolving just sort of uh, natural organic thing um i my, my sort of hard date is like the first of october through for a big new menu because the hard thing right now is because obviously we've got single use menus which means that I can only have so many cocktails. Um, and I'm, obviously Clive's is notorious for the, the, ooh, for the book, for the book menus. Um, and so I'm trying to eventually get back to that sort of style. The menu will definitely probably secret out, like more aligned with what we had at FDW, the fold out paper sort of style, like a newspaper style menu. Um, but it all depends on how these rules post COVID sort of go yeah. like single use menus. I'm not going to be spending a bunch of money on single use menus. We have to throw them away as soon as we think. So like right now it's a gradual burn until October that, that winter, that winter order menu um, will definitely be bringing, we'll definitely be keeping the cocktails on tap the way they are, but we'll be bringing back like the hot crock pot cocktails, like the punch bowls we used to do with the crock pots where you'd have a hot punch, like a hot buttered rum or a, mm. a, a spice cider or something like that. That's definitely coming back for, for winter and really just gearing the menu back to being that sort of really classic European style hotel bar, you know, good highballs and, classic martinis and stuff like that. How so, many items would you say are going to be on the menu then? Lots. Lots. There's going to be some page turner. Um, I think it's about like balancing out what is easy to serve and approachable to really geeky and hard. Um, long-term goal, to be really honest, I'd love to get a martini cut in here. Be, be Victoria's first martini cut by the table. So, cut comes up, you order a martini, get stirred at the table, poured, done you walk away so you pick your gin you pick your vermouth get stirred up served up that'd be incredible i mean just to think <laughs> of the people that would come in not expecting that didn't know yep and they see someone over there get it yep and what do you done. think they're gonna do order it exactly so I, i'd like to do victoria's first martini cut is a is a is a goal for me for the new year um but again it, i think it is a, a, a slew of evolution because i i kind of with everything that i do training wise now it's a little bit of a boiling frog theory like just a slow increase over time and just keep building up. A lot of people think that I'm a, a bull in a china shop, which I can be, but I try, I'm trying to uh, negotiate that bull in a china shop and sort of understand where Clive's has been for the last seven years, but also understanding where we need to go for the next five and sort of building it out from there. And so you have sort of a timeline of where you know where it needs to kind of go, or you have like a, a an idea in mind. Yeah, I have a I have a rough idea. Like I, I think leaning into amaros and bitters again is a big thing for us. Absinthe, obviously, gins are always going to be good here. Building out a whiskey program that's much more substantial is a big one for me, but I need more space. So uh, if we can get renovations for next year i'd like to to see a little a, a little freshen up and some some movements towards a bigger whiskey program which means more space to sit whiskey yeah so and as far as the food goes does that is the food going to change very much yes we're, we're i'm working with the chef upstairs um and and sort of leaning into i've actually downloaded something like 25 like european hotel bar food menus 
and I'm going to print them all, and we're just going to cherry pick certain things. I'd like to see sardines. I'd like to see riette. You're always going to have to have a clubhouse. That's just the way it is. Uh, same with a burger. Doesn't matter if you're a five star hotel. There's always a burger on the the hot lobby lounge menu. So I'm, I'm going to try and sort of cherry pick off like 25 different menus and sort of see what sort of sits there. I think a really good caprese salad's always good. There's a whole bunch of little stuff. Um, I'd be stoked for the burger because I have a feeling like whatever burger is here. It's to going be to be like, it has like to be mind blowing. It has to be gangster. Yeah. So yeah, it, we're, we're going to be working towards sort of like it, my goal is, is that we've had, I, we had Clive's my time. We had Clive's Jace's time. What is Clive's for the next five years? You know, to have a hotel lobby bar that is over 10 years old now, still very popular, still very successful. How do we make it more successful and more popular for the next five years so that we don't go into that sort of, massive dump that most hotel lobby bars go into where they're just like, it's a hotel lobby bar. Like, how do you pull yourself back out of that? Oh, it's just another hotel lobby bar. It's just another hotel lobby bar and a four-star hotel sort of deal. So, it's, it's sort of re, re-engineering about where we want to see ourselves in five years. It was funny. I saw the, when the, uh, the patio opened and you, and you popped the bottle. <laughs> Oh man, people love my screw up so bad. And it's that's the first time it's ever happened where it exploded. First time ever. I've done I've done savoring all over the world, hundreds of bottles, and I know where I went wrong with that one. Yeah. Um, I thought it was funny when I saw it pop up. I love and, the fact you put it out there and you're just like, this happened. Well, I think again, it goes back to like I think I posted a blooper the week before, and that really resonated with people. Yeah. Um, I was doing a quick little uh, cocktail video, and. I said hot as balls. Oh yeah, and then you and then you said fuck in there. <laughs> well, the thing is, I didn't notice the fuck. Yeah, and my wife told me she's like, "Yeah, you said hot as balls, but you said fuck." And I'm like, what? "I missed it too." Watching it actually, it, it was one o'clock in the morning. And I'm rewatching. I'm like, "Oh, I did." Huh. Okay. Yeah, but that really resonated with people too. Like, people just seem to love when I screw up. And I think I think people like to see. That not everything is perfect. Oh, no. like at the start of this podcast, I screwed up in the very very beginning of the intro, but I'm just going to leave it in there. Because it, it's, I, th- I think it's important to actually have that stuff there. I think so. it's it's still a bit authentic and generous. Like I've done Zoom calls with my dogs blown up upstairs, and you can hit, definitely hear it on the audio. And I'm just like, you know what? That's just the way it is. Like a fire truck's gone past my house. I live on Lampson Street in Squamalt, so it's like the main thoroughfare for like ambulances and fire trucks. It happens all the time. Yeah. Even in my basement, you can still hear it. Um, but yeah, I think. I think it's that authentic, genuine. Like everybody goes, oh, you you create such great cocktails. I'm like, yeah, but. It's the result of like 10 complete screw ups. Like I screwed up 10 times before this one great cocktail came out. Like it, it's little bits here and there that people think that I just go, Oh, I've got a cocktail idea. Sometimes it happens that way, but like done. Oh, there we go. It's on the menu. And I'm like, and it doesn't happen that way. When you, time. Get, when you get an idea, um, how quickly are you able to arrive at sort of the final destination that you were hoping to achieve? Like once you get an idea. Pretty quick, pretty quick. Like there's, there's all tweaks real quick. Um, I love that, that about the team at FTW back in the day because we had our group chat and I'd come up with an idea like in the shower or something like that. And I'd literally message everybody. By the time we went through all the messages and got to work that day to work, we'd already have already fleshed out everything mm. and everybody would have picked up ingredients and like brought in tools and we'd just get there and we'd go, done. And so like four people just like brainstorm the whole thing, distill it down to one idea and done. 
One thing I love uh, that Ine was doing before the pandemic was Sunday fun days yeah. where they had like a, a theme on a Sunday. And like the very first one was Godzilla. And then Mike <laughs> came up with a bunch of cocktails, uh, Mike and Rob and Anton. They, they had a bunch of cocktails um, like revolved around Godzilla. Like there was a Mothra <laughs> and then whatever the other monsters were. And it was just for that one day. One day. And I, I love the, uh, the exclusivity of, of something like that. Yeah. Are you going to be doing anything here like that? Possibly. Uh, the like hard a- thing with pop-ups right now is obviously you can't bring people in, but I do have a friend who's coming in from Portugal. Uh, he runs a little bar in Portugal called Ulysses Bar in Lisbon. I think it's one of my favorite bars in Portugal, if not in the world. Like I think it's my top five favorite bars. Um, it's 20 square feet. It's an old cobbler sh- shop, just a skinny little room. Yeah. No tables. People sit across from each other about this, this far apart, maybe a little bit closer. So if you sit at the, at the doorway, the guests pass the drink down to you. Oh. And then you stand you can stand in the laneway as a as a seat. He's got four hundred bottles on the back bar, which is a huge selection of alcohol How for does twenty that fit square feet. area. It's twenty square feet this way and twenty square feet that way and twenty feet that way. Oh. So it's like to the ceiling. It's in a two hundred a seven hundred year old building or some crazy. He owns the whole building. So how does he get to the bottles that are way up? Do you have ladder? ladder? Okay. So he has like he has four floors above him. That he like has his apartments and we like, I go stay with him when he goes. He's got back the, the highest back deck in Lisbon and this crazy amount of cool stuff. But, um, cars still come up the laneway. So you'll be drinking a beer or drinking a cocktail in the laneway. And the laneway is only about my width, like six point, like six foot five wide. And then all of a sudden a freaking cargo van will come up the thing and you'll have to like, Sit up on the ledge and like hold hold tight so yeah. that they can get up and then you sit back down and you like lay down. You stand up on the well in the laneway. But he's coming. He's going to quarantine for fourteen days and he may do a pop up here. Back in the day, we used to do a lot of that sort of like single menus. We used to do homage cocktail Friday and uh, did bartenders Saturday. So we did over a space of eighteen months something like. 125 bars from around the world. We'd take four of their drinks off the menu. We'd recreate them just for Friday and that would be it. Then we did best ofs and a few other ones, but we've done bars from everywhere in the world. Um, I think. How many I, different bars do you think you've been to? If in you total? To, yeah, just guess. I'd say a thousand. That's so crazy. Maybe more. Maybe more. Cause I. Do you have a top three most memorable? Oh, yeah. yeah? For sure. For sure. I think um, Old Man in Singapore uh, is definitely up there. Why? Um, one, it was my local. Okay. I lived upstairs from it. Yeah. Um, but it was just the team, the vibe. I think it's one of the best bars in the world, hands down. The cocktails are f- fantastic. Uh, very molecular as well. Rotovapped and redistilled stuff and all this sort of stuff. And I just love the people there. The team just made you feel like... Awesome. It was a high-end cocktail bar, speakeasy. So, my first visit to Singapore, I didn't know about this bar. And funnily enough, two guys from Montreal opened a place like three blocks away in Singapore. And I was on uh, I was on um, Kyong Sak. And so, I went and saw my mate from Montreal. And he's like, oh, you've got, you've got an old man, yeah? And it's been like four weeks since I've been. I'm like, no. What are you talking about? He's like, old man. You've got to go to old man. And so, I looked it up. And I'm like, and I'm walking back to my house and I'm like wait wait a second this is in my this is in my building like this is in my hotel building and it's just a a, a pineapple light 
hanging above the door and that's it no signage that's just a pineapple light so i walk in and i'm like okay and i i sit down i sit down and uh start having a drink and one of the bartenders it was a quiet tuesday night or something one of the bartenders comes sat sat with me start chatting and then there was another bartender who i actually eventually hired sitting like right across me he knew one of my mates from vancouver so it's all serendipitous, very random. And he's sitting there, he's having his drink, and then he turns around, he's like, "You're Sean Sewell, aren't you?" I'm like, "Fuck!" I'm like, "Yeah, that's me." And he's like, "Oh, hey!" And we we became good friends, and then he eventually came and worked with me at Misfits at Roxy. Is that literally what you said in your head when he said y- that? Yes, I always do. <laughs> but I think Old Man Singapore is just that. It's my special place. It's just a place that, for a high end speakeasy style bar. That plays Guns N' Roses on Friday night, super loud, where you can have a, like, you don't drink beer there. You still drink the cocktails. It's packed, usually standing room only, that I can class as my local is, like, a very special thing. Like, that's a, that's a special that's a special place. How much does it add to it, the fact that they just have a little light outside? And, and you could easily walk by and just have, you were living there for a month and didn't know it was there. <laughs> yeah. How much does that add to like the coolness factor or just the, the experience of it? To be honest, not much. Okay. Not much because I like, I love taking people there, but it's, it's on the top 50 best Asian bars and stuff like that. Like people know where it is. Okay. It's just that it's a special little spot for me. The staff there are awesome. Andrew Yap, who runs the place is like this old school Singaporean uh, native who, who, opened it with the guys from Hong Kong, old old man in Hong Kong. Um, and he just runs it special. Like his his level of hospitality is just awesome. And so like that's a, just a special spot for me. Same thing with Ulysses Bar in Lisbon. Like the hard thing with Lisbon was I was there for the Lisbon Bar show and I was the keynote speaker for the, the start of the show. And the problem was is that two of the best bars in Lisbon that get tons of awards were shut till 11 o'clock both nights. I was there for pop-ups and, and guest bartenders and stuff. I'm like, yeah, but I just want to come experience your place um, and experience it without all the tomfoolery. Like, it's a different sort of space when you do pop-ups and guest bartenders and stuff. Um, and I walked to a lot. And then another two bars in Lisbon were shut due to the Lisbon bar show. So, the staff could go in and attend. And I'm like, yeah, but- I'm in town for 48 hours. You're killing me. Um, so Ulysses and Lisbon is just great. He's got, he, uh, so Manuel is a, um, Portuguese born Canadian. So he grew up in Edmonton and Calgary, but he's from Portugal. 20 square feet, really gangster, uh, Portuguese beers on tap, like craft beers, and these little setups that you like a Yuzu IPA from Portugal. And you're just like, uh, where am I right now? Any Yuzu. I love anything with a Yuzu. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then 400 bottles, like Pappy Van Winkle, because he brings so much stuff back from Canada because he's an importer here. So he brings stuff from Alberta back to Lisbon, which have no rules like we have. Hmm. And you can go in and get a Pappy Van Winkle 21 year old old fashioned. It costs you a pretty penny, but you can get it. And so, it's just this sort of special spot and most people will be like, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Um, but it is a special spot. And so I think those two spots out of everywhere, trying to think of anywhere else that I went to. That it's amazing like, though, with those little bars that seem to exist in other parts of the world where like these little random, tiny, yeah. tiny, tiny spots, you can easily 
live in the, you could be living in the building, not know it's there. Yeah. But like when we were in Japan, the, the day when we were leaving, we're going back, sort of going, getting ready to go to the airport and we're walking down the, uh, the sidewalk and there was this little cube building was all see-through, but it was a bar. They did shoe shines and, and it was a bar. <laughs> so they had one guy doing shoe shines. The other guy was a bartender and like Anton went in, he got a match old fashioned. As you do in the just on the sidewalk in this little thing, and it was like an awesome experience. And I think I think cocktails are now starting to progress into the same. So food, I think, has had that for a while. Like you go to a subway and you get great sushi, or like I think Japan's a special spot. But like in France or in Europe, you like find this little hole in the wall that does great pizza or mm-hmm. like great croissants or great like ramen. You know, like ramen spots. I think in Tokyo are like this sort of uncategorizable sort of subculture in Japanese cuisine where that was the first meal we had when we yeah, got there. It's literally just a sliding door and you walk in and it's, it's a sort of stylish, like it is what it is. It's a little dinosaur place. And then you get a bowl around and you're like, Oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever had in my mouth. In that my was life. our first two hours there. Yeah, <laughs> just That's ramen. exactly what it was. Just ramen. Yeah. So I, I think cocktails have started now sort of in certain parts of the world getting to that sort of pay, space. I've had great experiences in San Francisco, great spots in London, um, just memorable spots. I've gone everywhere and, and had some great spaces. I think Lisbon and, and Singapore sort of resonate with me right now because it's just, it was, it's been the last year mm. that I've sort of done those sort of locations. Like I had some great bars in Bangkok, although it was a pain in the ass to get around in Bangkok. Um, I had some great bad experiences in Bangkok as well, but I think that. I think it's a personal level. Like when we got best bar here, everybody came in and was like, well, you're the best bar. So can I have a pint of Canadian? I'm like, well, what your definition of best bar is and what my definition of best bar is, is very, very different. And so I think it has to be a personal thing. And some people aren't going to like what you do. Some people are going to love what you do, but it is a personal thing about how you do it. And, but I think you also have to stick to your guns and stick to your, that mission statement and that mantra. And, there's, I always like to try and live – there's always black and white in the industry, but you try and live in the gray, and the gray is about this big for this much black and white. So, you try and you, – you're going to have rules. You're going to have, like, the way the door works and how to seat people and what drinks you make and so on and so forth, but you, there's always that gray area, and you live in that gray area. And with COVID now, has it has it shrunk the gray area, expanded it, or – Oh. I feel like it may have shrunk it, eh? To a degree, I still think I think the definition of what brands were for restaurants and bars before COVID has definitely changed post COVID in a in a in a relatively big way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think if you did if you were a restaurant and you didn't do takeout during COVID, I think your brand has been detrimentally affected. Can I can I say one thing about that? Yeah, my my feeling after talking with some people that own restaurants here. The places that were already doing takeout mm-hmm. pre-COVID, they've they've crushed during COVID because yes. I think people are already thinking them as takeout restaurants. Mm-hmm. But the places that were not takeout previously and had to adapt to that, uh, they haven't seemed to have done as well. And I think people already were associating these these places like like Wrap and Roll or The Hive, yeah. and they're doing better than they've ever done, pretty much. I think yes and no because you've got to adapt because the thing the thing with the restaurants and bars that uh, restaurants mainly, but the the restaurants that try to pivot and do takeout. They did it in this sort of sense that like trying to still hold onto that old brand Mm -hmm. and they didn't fully go into it. Like for me, I kind of look at it and I talk to Anton about it with sushi. Like sushi is a great one. It's like, why not 
do a quick video using these sort of cameras of the sushi chef making that one dish and then put a QR code that goes straight through to YouTube on the box when it gets delivered. That'd be sick. And someone can go QR code, watch the YouTube video, flick it up to AirPlay to your big screen, which pretty much everybody has AirPlay on their big screen these days. And literally while you're eating the sushi, the sushi chef is making the the thing. Same thing with cocktail to go packs. Why not have the bartender make the cocktail? You have a recipe card with a QR code and you can literally watch Mike Norberry make a freaking. Which I think they did that. I, I hope they did because I gave them the freaking like, yeah, gold. That was, that was done. So I think that's the thing is like the, the evolution of consumer convenience in the way of online shopping on the way, on the way of online ordering has now jumped the shark. And I hate to say jump the shark in a, in a, in a positive way, but like I, I was just talking to my mate about it. It's like in 1980s video dating was gauche was like socially like cringed upon. Oh, you're video dating gross in the two thousands. Tinder is like, everybody's tindering. Everybody's bumbling. Everybody's doing whatever dating app there is out there. Now it jumped a point where people were like, this is acceptable. Like for you to hook up on Tinder is fine. Online ordering is the same thing. This was going to come. Online ordering from all restaurants, all restaurants, and I'm maybe saying 5%, maybe no, but all restaurants was coming in the next two to five years. COVID just like jacked that process back into a point where if you're not doing online ordering and doing a creative way of doing online ordering, like if you're doing family style meals in your restaurant to the customer, but you can't do that to go, you're missing what the consumer is going to be doing in the next two years. Like, and it's, if we have another lockdown, mm-hmm. you're really screwed. And so you can't hold on to this sort of dream of this is what my brand is. This is what the industry's like. That industry's gone. That brand is gone. The industry's broken horribly, like in the, the worst possible way. Our industry is horribly broken. So the fact that lockdowns closed restaurants and bars down within a month. You know, like you can have a restaurant and bar that has a, a solid brand in any city that has been around for 10 to 15 years and a bad month can cripple you. Well, I saw that about that one place in New York and I forget what it was called. Been open for 20 yep. years, crushing. There's and- 83 old restaurants going out of business, you know, so you either have to adapt to the new world or you're going to die. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like I, I talk to a lot of restaurant tours and a lot of restaurant managers. I'm like, well, why didn't you do takeout? And they're like, oh, well, our food isn't takeoutable. I'm like, you do pizza and pasta, man. Like, of course you can do pizza and pasta to go. Like, oh, it doesn't fit with our brand. I'm like, your brand doesn't exist the way it does anymore. Yeah. Like, and it's not going to exist in the next 18 months as the world has changed. Like online ordering, the 2Ds, the Uber, food, Uber Eats, the DoorDash, that is becoming more and more prevalent because there's still a lot of people out in BC, not talking about the rest of the world, like just BC, who don't want to come inside. I have customers and guests who are so happy with the patio because now they can come because they will not come and drink inside. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm one of those people that doesn't really want to be inside. And that's BC where we have like minimal cases. We're not talking about New York or San Francisco or Arizona or Florida. Like we're talking about BC. So if you're not adapting to that and figuring out how to do cocktail kits, um, our cocktail kits at Pagliacci's that Solomon sort of brainstormed and me and him sort of put together, killed it. 
during like the takeout sessions. Like we were just doing swag, like tons and tons of swag. Negroni kit, gin, sweet vermouth, Campari, two Campari glasses, some Negroni glasses, like Negroni sunglasses, so, like a freaking Aperol Spritz, uh, Aperol Spritz scarf with the Aperol Spritz kits, everything. So. If you're not sort of looking at where your consumer's coming from and what they're wanting from your brand, because that's really what I think that what COVID opened us up to is like, what is the consumer asking of your brand? Mm-hmm. Not what are you willing to give to the consumer? Like, what are they asking for you right now? They want to have your food at home. Like, like let's, let's use Olo as an example. Brad out on the farm talking about the greens. And we can do this all like you You do all your videos on these cameras. These cameras are awesome. Like talking about the greens that go into your salad would absolutely blow up. People I would, would I want to talk to Brad. Like, like when, I, when, when they were closed down, I guess, for renovations or something during COVID. Yeah. And I saw the paper up. I was worried that it was because I knew they, yeah. they, had, they had the farm <laughs> yeah. going and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, but I was so happy when they're reopened. And I do want to talk to Brad. So, like, I, I think there's you've just got to start getting creative about how do you put your message across that's mm-hmm. deep down in your soul across the consumer in a completely different playing field. And we're not talking about like a different baseball diamond. We're talking literally a different sport, like online ordering and eating at home and being away and being comfortable being away from COVID and stuff is a different sport than we're used to. And how do you play in that different league of all of itself? And so, like, coming up with creative ways, I think video is underutilized. I think social media is super underutilized. Um, well, again, I, how many people are putting up even just one piece of content a day for their business? Fuck. I wish more. I really – I don't understand people. Like, I've had so many conversations with people who are just like, oh, I was told three pieces a week is good. I'm like, no. Three pieces a week will just get blown into the algorithm somewhere and will just disappear. And I'm talking like when I, when I have those sort of conversations, that's with big brands. We're talking about multinational, multi-million dollar companies where they're like, well, the other whiskey brands only post twice a month and we're doing it three times a month. I'm like, um, once a day. And they're like, no, that's too much. I'm like, are you trying to attract the 25 to 34 year old demographic? They're like, yes. That's why we did a radio ad. I'm like, when? Oh, like 11.30 in the morning. I'm like, okay, so everybody's already gone to work. So, no one's listening to radio if people listen to radio at all in the mornings, unless it's a really good like rate, like morning show. Um, I was like, so, you're trying to track the, chase this demo with this sort of menta- this sort of strategy. I'm like, that makes no sense whatsoever. You want to chase 25 to 34-year-old males in professional pieces, but you only want to post three times a month. Yep. That makes no sense to me whatsoever once a day oh that's too much i'm like you can do easily once a day it's very easy you have a huge budget a huge marketing budget you can do once a day well it's like you were saying when with your stuff you strip out a bunch of content from each thing and you can have like five pieces of content from one talk or one episode right yeah and i think that's the thing is it goes back to like how do people absorb your information yeah like i take screenshots of tweets and put them up on my instagram Mm -hmm. like the content's still there. I write a co- bit of co- piece of copy that I, I was doing um, the last couple of weeks. I've been trying some new sort of stuff on Twitter because they've got the um, uh, quiz, like the the, the picking of uh, multiple choice quiz. So, oh, okay. and then it tells you what the ranking is like. So, on Clive's, I'm like, okay, so what's your favorite gin based mixed cocktail? 
And then the quiz will come through and it's 60% aviation, 20% white ladies, so on and so forth. Screenshot that, put it through Canva to square it off up on Clive's Facebook page. What's your favorite gin cocktail? Comment below. And then bunch of comments. And so I think people underestimate how people digest information in this day and age. And they don't look at what the consumer is doing instead of they, they look at how they see things. Yeah. And so like the, that quality is subjective sort of mentality. People love videos. People like see that screenshot of that tweet. We got a ton of engagement on that video, on that, on that post. And it's just a, it's just a graph of what vi- no, things I'm like, Oh, what's your favorite bourbon? Oh, this one, this one, this one. And like, it just engages the, the consumer on a different platform altogether after doing that already on Twitter. Exactly. And people just think about, you just took a screenshot and put it up. Like, and people are happy to give you that information because mm-hmm. they're super passionate about it. But it just takes, again, something as simple as a screenshot. Just put that up. It's a document over create. So, like, I think people get tied up on, like, creating, creating, creating. And and as soon as you start thinking about how do I create content that's going to resonate with people, mm-hmm. you start losing the fact that you people – certain things will resonate with people on a completely different level. There's stuff that I do that I'm, like, on – I post and I'm, like, eh. I never really care about likes or stuff like that. That's not really my my – gratification matrix it can't um, be i don't no. think it can't be at all no. no especially nowadays no it's useless like i i talked about i did an article about influencer marketing the other the other week which i still think influencer marketing is still a very viable strategy for marketing mm-hmm. um like mike when he was doing his spirited uh his cocktail a day thing on igtv oh, that was amazing it, I, I hooked him up with a few brands that he did cocktails with, and those brands actually got a little bit of a little bit of a kickback on it. Um, I, I think influencer marketing is a very specific marketing thing because people saw it as an easy way to get ROI instead of actually treating it like an actual marketing strategy. Yeah, they were like, "Oh, you have ten thousand followers. I will let you have dinner at my restaurant," and that just breeds an entitlement mentality and this whole influencer job description, blah 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 blah. It's almost like entrepreneurship. Like I, I've only in the last like three to four months actually started calling myself an entrepreneur. It was like this dirty word that I was just like, "Uh, I can't. I'm just a. Bu- I'm a hospitality business person." Yeah. Um. But I think with social media and stuff, people start overthinking it. And so I do social media for a few people and I'm just like, okay, well, listen, look at every day like a bucket. You fill those buckets up with a theme. So it'd be cocktail of the day, spirit of the day, your little advice section. Your advice sections, I've already got 10 videos for, of advice that you did two years ago that I'm going to reuse that. That's two and a half months worth of content. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, we only put that out on a Monday. Every Monday, you have 10 pieces. That's two and a half months. All of a sudden, 10 pieces of content on a certain theme is very, very freaking easy for people. Mm-hmm. You know, like take, oh, we've been talking about Eno, Ine, and Nubo a lot. Saki of Saki Sunday. Just do 10 videos talking about Saki. It's two and a half months worth of content. That's really, really easy. So you start documenting and, and really just thinking about like, what people want to see, like they want to see you get your brand new vegetable delivery. Oh yeah, from the farm, hundred like, percent. Just a nice shot, white Chef White's. Like even if it's got a little smudgy on it, like with a big ass like plate of tomatoes and basil and stuff, people lose their mind on that. You know, so like just document everything. If you're prepping fish, you're pulling down, breaking down a fish, time lapse that sucker, done. People will love that stuff. And so, like, that that sort of mentality of 
documenting. Like I've done a lot of videos here where it's just me prepping my, my smoke trident or me prepping a cocktail. Super easy. And it resonates. I think it's reframing people's mindset though, especially a lot of people that don't aren't used to doing social media. Like they're just used to like, like again, wrap and roll. Mm-hmm. Like they do everything in house. Yeah. They soak their chickpeas every single day for 24 oh, wow. hours or overnight. Sorry. They, they, they do all like the meat pro- they process in house, the chicken, they, they deal with it all in house. And they're just used to doing that. But I'm like, you need to show people this because mm-hmm. they don't see that and all this effort. But, but it's just, again, it's something they're used to doing. Well, I think it's the change in what people see, deem social media as because the thing is that marketers took social media and started making it super polished and this sort of faux this faux message this sort of non-authentic copy and this sort of like inspiration for the day and you're miserable like i think black mirror and there's a whole bunch of like parody videos of people on youtube now that do like motivation monday and then it's like i'm miserable um but i think that authentic original story and i try and like get people back to that and they're like but why would i post a picture of my distiller like stirring mash i'm like because people freaking love that stuff like that's what people want to yeah, see do a boomerang or something yes <laughs> do a boomerang <laughs> where you smash a bottle and like just put it everywhere 100 percent. i put glass everywhere when i did that but that's the thing is like i was like i want to do a boomerang this day sort of christening the the patio and then that happened and like Alana, who took the boomerang, she's like, are you going to use that? I'm like, message it to me. I'll use it. And it became a post. It became a like a post on my personal That Instagram. was probably better than it going proper, right? A hundred percent. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the thing is like, there's going to be some stuff. So I do a lot of gift stuff, like take in like eight to 10 photos of creating a cocktail in 10 photos and then turn it into a, like a, 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 a gift video mm-hmm. um, with a bit of music in the background. And so I think people need to, get over this sort of people are done with like seeing this over the top, well lit, like food shots on yeah. tables yeah. because it looks like an ad and people just go flick, flick. Same thing with stories. Like stories are super underutilized. I think in most, in most brands and restaurants, like, and because p- the thing is some people won't go through your wall. I've had people tell me the best one. I think I've, I've had people tell me that, um, they don't want to mess up their wall because their wall looks a certain way. Yeah. I'm like, you understand that no one looks at your wall, right? Like no one, like people see your photos in the algorithm splitting off like two days ago, maybe 10 minutes ago. Stories are a really big thing. People go through the stories because that's at the top of the page. Boom, 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 boom. You can go through everybody's stories. I'm like, you're just overthinking stuff. This is so true, by the way, because on my account, organically with these podcasts, I put up a little preview video yep. and it just happened to be the fact that every third one yeah. was, was the thing. So now it's a whole line in a row of people. <laughs> and it's like, there's this kind of, kind of this pressure in my head where I want to maintain that. But like you're saying, no one in general or very small minority of people that see your stuff mm-hmm. are going to your actual account mm-hmm. and yep. scrolling down. And that's, that's so important to keep in mind because even what you're saying, it's even playing in my head. And if you want to really see how that works out, just go and do a link tree or a Shorby on your, um, URL. I have to do one of those. Yeah. Yeah. And see how many people click on that actual URL really shows you how many people actually go to your page. Mm -hmm. Like if you want to throw that out, like literally do an edit job tonight and then take a photo of yourself, just banged out, exhausted headphones on saying like just finished editing three episodes or Sean Sewell's episode and he swore a lot. So I had to put a lot of beeps in 
absolutely exhausted and post that. And people were like, oh, it's 11 or 30 at night and Dallas is just finishing up editing Sean's episode because he swore too many times. <laughs> yeah. Dude, there, there's, there's such a lot of different mentality. I think that's just broken. And like you've been saying, like people ha- have an idea, I think, how they think it is, but they don't actually look at their behavior. And those two things don't correlate. Mm-hmm. They're just, they're, there's a, there's a big difference. Total side tangent. Yeah, of course. You mentioned before about the real magic at some places is talking to the chef and getting like the weird things that they have mm-hmm. or whatever. Is there a cocktail that stands out to you that you've either made or had that's like super weird? Oh, yeah. Like the, like a pinnacle one. Yep. Uh, nutmeg and clove in Singapore again. Uh, a mackerel cocktail. Ooh. And I like mackerel a lot. I wouldn't like this cocktail, I don't think. Yeah, I like mackerel a lot, like a lot, a lot. Yeah. But this was just super briny. Um, a really hot room as well, obviously Singapore. Um, not a lot of air conditioning. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so a, a, a small of a sweater, sweatier room and the cocktail just didn't chill down enough to take that edge off that, that briny salinity. Yeah. You know, like if it was super, super chilled, I'd be like, oh, okay. Like if it was nitro, like, like liquid nitrogen in, in, in chilled or something like that, I'd be like, oh, okay. Well, I'm good. This is nice and chilled. It's taking that salty salinity off the edge. But, um, yeah, I would have to say that cocktail was just like, this is something I probably wouldn't have again. Mm. Like, even for a lover of like briny fish, that that was one was that was like just a little too much. So one thing we talked about in the in the one with Anton and Mike is mayonnaise in a cocktail. Have you ever done that? Doable. Doable because it was a joke. Anton got so he got triggered by the fact that I wanted Mike to do a, a, they call it the tapeworm okay and, and make it make a cocktail with mayonnaise and, and anton said there's no way to make it taste good and he oh, got, there's always ways i would I, I thought it was hilarious i love triggering anton and he went <laughs> off about it and, and it was funny but i'm, I'm wondering if, if you've ever done that i haven't done it but it would be what i would do is i would um put it in a food processor mm. probably gin blitz it to emulsify the hell out of it then sous vide it for a couple of hours to really like get some flavor in there mm-hmm. and then freeze it and fat wash it basically. So it's a hell of a lot of work. Yeah. You, you'd want to take, you'd literally want a clear product at the end. Yeah. Um, but you would take a lot of the fats and a lot of the flavor out of the mayonnaise and put it in the gin. Okay. So I think anything's possible and possible just takes a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, that's what I, how I live my life. So I think blitzing it, emulsifying it, uh, sous vide it for like maybe an hour and a half, two hours at about 75 degrees and letting that just like really like, cause the mayonnaise will probably separate with the alcohol breaking down the proteins in the, in the mayonnaise, the egg proteins. Um, but really when you think about it, when you break down what mayonnaise is, it's really just olive oil and egg wa- and like egg yolks. It's really that and with some seasoning. So oil is dissolvable in alcohol for fat washing. We use egg yolks and flips. I love egg yolks in a, in a drink. Yeah. Egg, egg yolks egg whites, and flips. Sorry, egg whites. Egg whites we, we use whole eggs and flips. So, um, it's doable. It would be doable. And then you just, you would just freeze it. And then the fats in the, the mayonnaise would freeze. The alcohol wouldn't. Yeah. And then you'd put it through a coffee filter a couple of times. I'm, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to make this for you this weekend. I will make you a mayonnaise infused gin and I will take it over to Anton just for you. 
That would make and, me and, so happy. And I will, I will film it for you and tag you in it uh, when he makes you makes me a mayonnaise gin martini. I and, would love uh, it. You would, you would make my week for this. It would be pretty clear. Like I think the mayonnaise would separate really well. And the it's, fact that you just spend like three or four minutes talking about this, you made me so happy. It's doable. <laughs> It's very, very doable. Thank you. <laughs> Dude, so... Anton's screwed now. <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, your books. Yeah. So you said you've, you've, you've... I mean, two are out. And you said there's three and four? So 2013, I wrote my first cocktail book called Cocktail Culture with Nate, uh, who is my bartender here. Um, that was all about Victoria's cocktail culture. Yeah. Um, lo- and... 2018, September 2018, it was a really quick turnaround. Um, I went to f- 11 different publishers, 12 different publishers, and asked to do a Canadian cocktail book, um, similar to cocktail culture, but like a Canada-wide version. Um, 11, 10 said no. Well, 10, 11 said no. They were like, nope, not our cup of tea. Canada's too much of a small market. Can't sell in the US. Pfft, no. Um, and then I found a publisher friend of mine in the UK, uh, Mixellany, and they've done books with Gary Reagan, Salvatore Calabresi, Dal de Groff, uh, very well-known uh, cocktail historians themselves, uh, Anastasia and Jared. Uh, Jared Miller is actually the head distiller at um, Sipsmith Gin. Mm. So very, very well-known. They have a little – like a little uh, – publishing company on the side called Mixellany. And they said, yes, but I had a deadline and that was from September, 2018. I had to have it done by March, 2019. Obviously I didn't get it done by March cause I was wrangling 150 something bartenders to get it done. And so we, we released it in September, October. I actually released it in Singapore before I came home. Hmm. Um, so great Northern cocktails came out. And so on oh, the telephone's off, who'd be calling right now? Um, and so we published it. It did very, very well. Um, obviously just before Christmas, it was really good. And then COVID, we were just about to start kicking off like a, a bit of a book tour. And then that sort of killed all that. Um, but obviously being a book about bartenders and cocktails, it does need to get updated. And so, uh, I reached out to them about a month and a half ago. And I was like, okay, so I really think, cause it, it's difficult. You sort of think about it. It's like, I only released this book a year ago and now I want to start doing the second one. And they want it out in May this time. So like, that's a much truncated, truncated timetable, but I'm like, okay, well, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, well, let's double down and do it. But before that, I started my BC Spirits cocktail book, which was um, a cocktail book for cocktails from the distillery. So I've got 59 distilleries from across the province. Wow. Um, my photographer is um, Nick Hallam, who is Nickasaw on Instagram. Does really epic black background, very brightly colored cocktail pics. And so he's been always been a really big um, advocate for BC Spirits, like in general, not just me, but I was like, okay, well, you do the photos and then I'll self-publish. And then I start. I reached out about Grey Northern because I, I started getting close to finishing up BC Spirits. And I'm like, okay, well, I've got to start thinking about Great, Nor- uh, Great Northern Cocktails because we'll be two years apart by this time next year. If we release in September next year, it'll be two years between publications. And that's a good time difference to do the second book. And um, they were like, yeah, we're going to need you to do that by May. I'm like, okay, so I'm going to have it into them by March for May. So basically, I'm going to have two books coming out 
in a period of uh in a period of about a month and a half, two months. Oh, wow. One's going to be very specific to BC spirits, BC distilleries. It's sort of like a guidebook slash cocktail book. My goal is to for people to pick up the book of the distillery, pick up the product, and then make the cocktail that's in the book. So, it's a bit of a guidebook slash cocktail book. And I got about 59 out of 72 distilleries in the book. So, I'm pretty happy and I'm self-publishing that so I can do it every year. So, as soon as this one comes out, I'll have to start adding for next year and, and cracking on for the next year. So, and I, do you think you would add on more distilleries? Like, would it go up from 59? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm hoping that as new ones open, the, the hard thing with BC distilleries in general is that they're not necessarily gun-shy, but they're always... Um, wondering what's in it for the other person mm. to a degree. So, it's like a couple of distilleries just didn't get back to me. A couple of distilleries were like, oh, well, we don't really understand the process. And do we send you products? Do you need products? I'm like, well, no, we're just going to mock up the cocktails. Like, we can make cocktails look like cocktails with gin from anybody. I don't need bottle shots. I didn't want to do bottle shots or anything like that. Um so there's, I would probably say like right now there's about six to seven distilleries that I would have loved to have in this edition, but I feel as soon as I have this edition out, they'll be like, oh, well, we wanted to be in that. I'm like, well, check your emails and your Instagram accounts and your Facebook accounts and everywhere else that I try and chase you down. Um, so I'm hoping every year that it'll, it'll keep increasing as the industry increases. Same thing with Great Northern Cocktails. Like that book is my love letter to the Canadian bar industry. So it's always about like I, my publisher literally had to pull cocktail recipes out of me because I didn't want any of my personal cocktail recipes in it. There's no like Sean Sewell section or anything like that, where it's like a third of the book is me. It was literally three cocktail recipes that were like classics for me that she pulled out of me Hmm. to like put in the book. And I was like, well, it's not really about me. It's about the, the hundred and, 35 bartenders, 150 bartenders I have in the book. So, I'm hoping that will keep growing as well into a sort of a tome every two years of like brand new bartenders, which is a lot of work because it's not taking the same bios from each bartender that was in it the first time. So, it's easy to get new bartenders on board. You should do a group email and you go like make a receipt and bang, 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 away you go. But then I've got to go back to every individual bartender's already in the book and then send them back their bio and recipe. I'm like, are you still happy with this? Do you want to change it? Have you changed up jobs? Have you changed up like brand ambassadorships? Do you want to change the recipe of the cocktail? And then, of course, that just sets up a whole other set of work on top of the new bartender. So, between Victoria, Okanagan, and, and Vancouver, I think I've got something close to another 25 bartenders just for the West Coast. Oh, wow. Before I even go to Edmonton, Calgary, Ottawa, which I didn't have Ottawa in this in this edition, Ottawa wasn't in this edition because it was it just I didn't have anyone that came and like sparked. Saskatoon is still pretty small, but I've got like ten new bartenders for Saskatoon. I have ten new bartenders for Winnipeg. Ottawa is a whole new beast. Quebec City is a whole new beast. Montreal maybe about ten as well. So I've got like a hundred new bartenders for this copy of the book. That's crazy. So and you've got an Indiegogo up. Or is one of those things for one of the books, right? BC Spirits Cocktail Book, because I'm self-publishing, that's coming out of my own pocket. So, um, already I've paid for the photos and the editing myself. Um, and then it's going to go over to Frisian Press, and Frisian Press is going to publish it. And so, um, 
they're really excited because the pitches are really, really good. Like the designer, I sent some pitches over the, the designers, like I'm salivating. I just want like to lay this book out like perfect. And so, um, I have got an Indiegogo campaign, which I'm hoping will be the only time I have to do it. Cause I'm hoping that I can take the sales from the first edition. Mm-hmm. Pays for oh pays for the second edition yeah and so on and so forth um but yeah I've got an Indiegogo campaign going for that right now to try and cover some of the publishing costs because um, it is a passion project it's a massive passion project and for all the BC Spirit stuff that I've done um and continue doing it it's put me in the my wife hates this because it's put me in the hole for about twelve and a half thousand dollars because I. If I do big tastings, I rarely have time to reach out to distilleries to get a response. So I just buy stuff. Mm. So, like, I think I laugh. I laugh now because my second episode, I think, was absinthe. You know what you shouldn't do when you do a, a BC Spirits podcast is do absinthe as the second thing because most absinthe is around about 50 to 60 bucks a bottle. Yeah. And then you go do seven of them. So your second episode should never be absinthe. Yeah, that, that's on the second episode. <laughs> that's not like you're 30 in and we're going. No. This is number two. And number two, we did absinthe. And I did with Soul. We brought the absinthe fountain from upstairs at Pagliacci's, sat upstairs in the main office and like tasted a whole bunch of absinthe from from BC. The, the other thing is like, I don't really need 15 coffee liqueurs in my house right now. Like while I love a good, uh, a good black Russian at the end of the day, um, I'm not going to drink them on a regular basis. So when I did the coffee liqueur episode, I ended up having like 12 coffee liqueurs. Same thing with limoncello. Like I don't need seven bottles of limoncello in my house, but I do now have seven bottles of limoncello in my house. You know, like the highlights of those sort of tastings is the whiskey and the gin. Cause I can use that in cocktails and make a gimlet or a, a just drink whiskey knee. What the hell is a gimlet? Oh, gin and, and lime cordial. Okay. It's legit. It's good. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm a lazy bartender, but you've, so you've just got an insane collection of stuff at your house now. My wife counted it off because I did a big fever tree project at the start of this year, which I did craft distilleries from across Canada and paired them with tonic, ginger beer, ginger ale, and, uh, yeah, ginger beer and ginger ale. Um, Oh, and they got like orange ginger ale and a smoked ginger ale and a whole bunch of different things. But I had all these rums and whiskeys and gins and everything from across the country. I think in February, March, uh, my lovely wife did a count and I had 380 bottles in the, in my collection. <laughs> I think I'm probably kicking well over 400 now. Um, some stuff moves real quick, like gins and, and whiskeys and stuff. Do you have stuff. it like nicely displayed or is it just kind of like shoved wherever the space? Um, it's getting to the stage where it's shoved everywhere. Um, my kitchen is my kitchen because I have a. I'm very lucky that in my house in Esquimalt, I have a suite downstairs, mm-hmm. and we don't rent it out, so it's my office. Oh, amazing! So I, I have two. I have two rooms that are my offices. Plus, if you look at my videos, I always have a massive bank of bottles behind me and antique shakers and stuff. But my whole kitchen, my whole kitchen is full of spirits from the east coast so rums from nova scotia random gins from quebec like just crazy stuff that i'm just like i'm just never gonna get through all this this is insane and so yeah i'm kicking about over 400 products in my house right now that's hilarious at one stage i had a a fridge full of fever tree tonics and everything but that's slowly been chipped away you should do yourself a gin and tonic at the end of the night and sit up on the on the couch and relax with the girls and you mentioned um, you have vintage shakers. Yeah. How, how have shakers changed over the years? Have they? Um, yeah, to a degree. Like, uh, and the, what do the different shapes do when you're using them? 
oh, don't believe in all the hype when it comes to the scientific well, bullshit. I, about no, no, I'm just, I'm just asking. Like, is there? Is, it doesn't do much. No, because okay. the thing is, that you got your, your classics are cobbler, your Parisian, and your Boston. Your Boston's what what you see behind us with just a small tin, large tin. Mm-hmm. It's usually small glass, large tin, and you shake it. Um, and with the shaking motion, is it kind of like a signature of the bartender the way they do yes. it? It, that's what it is, right? Yes. Because like in Japan, I notice a lot of people are way out in front. Yep. And then here, a lot of people do it to the side. Yeah. So it, it comes down to this, this, the, the sign. Okay. So the science of the, the Japanese shake is hilarious because the, I can't remember the, who developed it, but I remember sitting on a seminar and he's like, so I remember sitting in a seminar and now I'm not scientific in any way, shape, form. He's like, now, now imagine when you're, when you're, when you're shaking a cocktail Japanese style that, the water molecules are, sco- are cubes. I'm like, okay, I'm no scientist, but water molecules are never cubes. They're always circle. Like, that's what molecules are. They're a sphere. And he's like, yes, yes, yes. But imagine if they're cubes. I'm like, but they're not. So, your whole theory of Japanese shaking of the the, the sort of like- Yeah, like, that's what it was. It doesn't make sense. Your whole Your whole aim, like everybody's got their own shake. Like I do, if it's egg whites, I do the big lumberjack. I got massive long arms, so I do the lumberjack, like chunk, 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 to try and get that so emulsification as far as you can. As far as I can, when it's egg whites, just trying to get that foam, get that emulsification, just like just massive, like lumberjack, trying to suck, chaw down a tree. If it's a a simple like sidecar or something, sans egg whites, I'll do the little the up and down, the up and down, the up and down. But the real thing is, is that you should shake it till your arms hurt. You should shake it till your arms hurt, till the, the tin is cold. Just to shake it as cold and as di- and the, the perfect dilution. Like people say, are you listening to the shake? I'm like, no, I just want, I just bang it out. And then I feel like when the ice is starting to break down, it's getting chipped away. The weight in your hand changes and then you crack it and away you go. So, but like every bartender's got their shake. Like you got the, the, you got the, the, the one, two, three, the one, two, three. But really at the end of the day is the end game is like, just make it cold, just make it well diluted and away you go. <laughs> like there is no real science behind it. If you've got really wet, crappy hotel ice, which we're lucky we don't have here. Yeah. Don't shake it as hard. Like just go. It's going to get really cold, really diluted real quick. If you've got. Hoshisaki, like inch by inch ice cubes or cold draft inch by ice, you're going to have to shake that sucker hard and long. Like you're really going at that because that ice just doesn't break down. It doesn't chip away. It stays as cubes. It doesn't dilute because it's, it's meant to be a solid inch by inch chunk of ice. Mm-hmm. And so the, like as dilution happens, chill happens. So you really need to shake that sucker for a while to get dilution down. Same thing with stirring. Like those inch by inch ice cubes, everybody's like raving about them. But I hear about like carpal tunnel syndrome in the arms and the elbows from shaking these massive weights. Like those cubes aren't light. And you do seven or eight of those in a shaker every night and you do 500 times that, it's a beast. And so same thing with stirring. You got to be very wary of like, your cold draft ice cubes, like how long you have to stir that sucker for? Is there something that comes to mind as far as like a key thing universally that would be good for a cocktail that would go into a good cocktail? In ingredient wise? Anything. First thing that comes um, to mind. I've been really in love with it, really like dissecting spirits as of late. Um, as cocktail prices go up, 
we seem to be staying at the same level of spirit quality. Mm-hmm. So, like, culturally, all over the world, like, as a culture, our culture sort of grows up, prices sort of increase, which, as they should, it's a lot of prep, a lot of care, a lot of labor that goes into these things. But I, I kind of feel like if you're going to charge 15 bucks for a Manhattan, that Manhattan better not have an entry-level rye in it or an entry-level Canadian whiskey in it. It better, it better have something that, like, your profit, like, as prices go up, your profit margin can stay really, really, like, go up with it. But you can always, like, take a niche back and still make a solid, like, contribution and a solid profit margin yeah. by making a better drink. My arguments are always, and I made this argument back in Moxie's back in the day, do I want someone to have a $12 drink or do I want oh, do I want someone to have a $16 drink? And this is 10 years ago, but do I want someone to have a $16 drink or do I want some, someone to have two $12 drinks? I'm always going to want someone to have two $12 drinks. And so I did this. I, I moved from Polar Ice and uh, Lambs in the well at Moxie's and I moved to Stolik Shania and Havana Club. And obviously, I picked a classic vodka martini and I picked a classic mojito and I made it with lambs. I made it with Havana Club. I made it with Stolly. Same recipes, same stir time. Like everything was the same. Put it in front of the owners, blind tasted them. I was like, which would you have a second one of? And then like this one and this one. I'm like, well, that's Stolik Shania and that's Havana Club. The difference between price of those two bottles is 50 cents. I'm like, so you've already said to me that you would have a second mojito made with Havana Club. Wouldn't you prefer to have a Vanna Club in the well so you get a second drink instead of having that cheaper lambs that you think you're making money and you might make an extra, let's be really honest, like maybe $50 to $100 in the year out of that having that product on your, on your well? Or do you want that second drink? You want that $25 per head spend instead of the $12 per head spend? And like, okay, move, change it over. And like kickbacks, like company kickbacks, all that stuff doesn't matter anything if you can't get that second and third drink out of a customer. Thanks for listening, Pose Shifters. Well, hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.